Father, we ask uh, for safety and travel, Lord. We uh, are the daring ones, I guess, that are, are here. Uh, Father, we desire to know more about your word. Help us, Lord, as we study through. And just praying, God, um, that our time here not be wasted, Lord, uh, that it would be full uh, of drawing closer to you, knowing more about you, seeing how you work and move in history, Father. Uh, please bless all those that are traveling home right now. If they be careful, uh, Father, shield them. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Oh, if you want, turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 5. You got your notes there. Deuteronomy 5 is where we're at. And one of the big things that we were focusing on uh, has been chiasm. I know chiasm has caused some of you troubles. Who's having difficulties with chiasms? Okay, some of us, some of us kind of are. Again, we're having a class in September <laughs> that will help with that. Um, it's, it's called hermeneutics. And it's not about a guy named Herman Udix. That's not who we're talking about, okay? Does everybody have a Bible? Does anybody need a Bible? Everybody good? Just want to make sure, okay. Well, I'm actually using my old one. Yeah, I've got to build up the arm strength to carry the other one. It might be, yeah, so... Everybody's giving me a hard time. I ordered a new Bible. I really wanted it. So it's the only thing John MacArthur's ever put out that I've appreciated. So none of his notes are in it. It's great. I love it. So it's got one and a half inch margins around it. And the paper, the paper was actually imported from Norway so that when you write on one side, it wouldn't bleed through to the other. Yeah, it's amazing. So don't be sarcastic. Oh, well, Lord knows your heart. Okay. So. Uh, moving on, one of the things that we're looking at here is a, is a chiasm of subject. Now normally how we've seen a chiasm and we work in is we're looking for common words or phrases that are going to match up. And that is an easier chiasm to deal with. It just takes time and sometimes you have to write it out by hand on paper or do a printout or something like that so you can work with the text with a pen in hand. That helps a lot. This is a little bit more difficult because the subjects are corresponding with one another. So you have to, essentially, here's an easy way to do it. What is the common denominator between the two? That's an easy question to ask in order to figure it out. What is the common denominator? What do these two things have in common? Um, kind of related, but not really. Let me give you a for instance. I don't hold to a what would be considered a traditional dispensational view of uh, revelation when it comes to uh, the bowl judgments, um, not the seal, seals, uh, bowls and trumpet judgments. I believe that the bowl and trumpet judgments are actually the same thing happening during the last three and a half years. I just believe that we're seeing two different perspectives of the same thing. And the reason is, is because when you line up the trumpets and the bowls together, if you were to do it in a chart form, you would find out that bowl, trumpet, bowl, trumpet, bowl, trumpet, bowl, trumpet, they all have a common denominator that, that walks through all of them. They all have something in common together that is a big deal that's going on at that moment. Some of it might be that stuff in the fresh water died. Other stuff might be stuff in the salt water died. The overarching theme might be the fact of darkness taking over. And you find with whatever number trumpet or whatever number bowl it is, they completely and perfectly correspond with one another. So I hold that view of that. Doesn't mean I still don't believe in a literal seven-year tribulation and that all stuff's going to happen, all that. Of course, I hold to it, absolutely. But I, I don't take a successive view of the bowls and trumpets uh, like a lot of other people would. 
And honestly, I held that former view for a really long time until I actually sat down and studied it out for myself to teach it to somebody. And then that's when I changed my view uh, on it. But it's okay. I'm still saved. It's good. So here's the question. If you notice on your paper, again, does everybody have this? I've got a few more sheets, a few more sheets left. Let me get one for you here, Doreen. If you notice the first grouping that's on there, verses 6 through 10 and verse 21. Now, with what we saw last week talking about love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then that makes up commandments 1 through 4, and then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, for on this all of the law and the prophets hang, or it hangs all the law of the prophets. In other words, it lives or dies by those two tenets. Commandments 5 through 10 are going to be love your neighbor as yourself. So, I can understand why we would have difficulty with saying, okay, wait, we already know how it's divided up. One through four is man's relationship with God. Relation, or, uh, five through ten, uh, commandments five through ten are man's relationship with one another. How do you live in a, in, a, in a godly way with one another? But if you look, let's read six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no gods before me, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And let me touch on something real quick. It's interesting to see the Bible's communication of what love looks like. Notice that love is not the ushy-gushy Valentine feeling. That's not what it is. When the Bible wants to talk about what love looks like, it is obeying the Lord. That's so important because it's completely countercultural and different from anything that today tries to promote to you what love is. Unbelievable. So with that in mind, look down now at verse 21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now let me ask you a question. And remember, and, and, and here's why this may be a little bit difficult if you tried to work on this at home. Okay, so we're having sympathy. You ready? Okay. Is remember that whenever you're dealing with chiasms, you're not always dealing with, well, this phrase matches this phrase. Sometimes it's the opposite. And that's actually how we start out here. Sometimes you have opposites going on in chiasms. What is it to covet? Let's start there. Well, to love, to desire. What is it to covet? To want. To love something, to desire something, to want something. Now what? You're on the right track. Excellent. What is, the, what is the problem going on in verse 21? You shall not covet what? 
stuff, essentially. If your neighbor's wife is a hottie, guess what? Pluck your eyes out. Throw them away from you. You don't need them. Keep, keep, keep your eyes on your own paper kind of thing. Notice it says here, you shall not desire your neighbor's house. They live in a better house than you, nicer house than you, newer house than you. They have a pool you don't, whatever. Don't need it. God didn't give it to you. It's not yours. Notice what else it says after that. His field, maybe he's got a lot of land. His male servant or his female servant. Man, that guy's always over at his house trimming his bushes. What's up with that? I need my bushes trimmed. How come that guy can't come over here? Whatever. You see what I'm saying? You're desiring something as you look around. You say, I want this, I want this, I wish this, I wish this, I wish this. Covet. Desire. Want. I would love it if this happened. Now, how does that parallel with what we just saw in 6 through 10? What is 6 through 10 all about? Lord God first. Or how about, well, it'd probably be easier for us if it said, you shall not covet anything but the Lord your God. That'd probably be a little bit more simple for us, wouldn't it? Notice, all the stuff that you have that you would covet is all stuff that you don't need. In other words, this is what I wrote down for it. Human beings are not worthy of worship and service. It's not about what somebody else has that distracts my attention, my devotion, my time, effort, energy, money, whatever it is, the things of this world that other people may have are not worth it. Have you ever wanted something that somebody else had and then once you got it, you realize, man, I really didn't want this that bad. You ever done that? We just became a victim of coveting is the reason why. And we realize all of our desires and everything were so feeble, you just could have outlined them with the chalk line on the on the ground and walked away. They were dead. They didn't amount to anything. It wasn't all that I thought it would be. It wasn't as glorious as it was. Has anybody ever had the opportunity to buy something new? Not used, but I mean something new. Something like, man, I'm saving up for that. I, I mean, I, I, this, this, this guy I looked up to when I was a kid, he was a drummer. And he, you know, he, he was going to play, uh, he was going to play like away in the manger. With, with the pastor. The pastor played piano at this church when I was little. And he hauled his entire drum set there, man. And it was ragtag, falling apart. He got it all in his car. He showed up. He's setting all of his drums up, all of his cymbals up and everything. He only used two drums for the whole song and one cymbal. He didn't hit anything else. But man, he brought it all for his display. And it was a heap of junk, man. I mean, it was just a terrible drum set. So he saved, and he saved, and he saved. And he saved. And the next time I saw him, about five years later, he had saved for years. And he drove all the way to the big city of Evansville and went to the big music store in Evansville. And he bought him a drum set man that stretched as far as the east is from the west. I mean, you could start hitting drums over here and just and just work your way around. Two big bass drums, cymbals everywhere. That guy plays guitar now. that amazing no no and I understand why you say that because you play guitar I get that but here's the amazing thing even when he got the drum set well it comes with factory heads on it we got to put new heads on it well we don't want that part to get rusted so we need to bring that out put some mechanical oil in there screw it back in well yeah I broke these sticks I got to go buy me a new pair of sticks now we always have to maintain it, aren't we? And regardless of how long you have it, it never looks as good as it used to. 
That's why American Pickers is so popular and we love watching it. When they find this vintage stuff that nobody's touched, when they find new old stock, especially of those like gas globes and how brilliant the colors are, you know, that stuff is so rare because people usually don't have it all stored away like that. It's out in the elements and it's corroding and it's falling away as time goes on. It's a whole idea of coveting stuff. God does not. God is the opposite of all those things that we try to treasure or collect or whatever it is. He's the opposite. So notice the idea, these parallels in subject. Remember, in subject. And the parallel can either be same, same, or opposites. Okay? The idea is, is that from verses 6 through 10, is that Yahweh alone is worthy of worship and service. Only He is worth affection. Only He is worth wanting. I think that's really important. Only He is worth wanting. When you look at the commandment not to covet, it's opposite in the chiasm. The idea is, is there's nothing that somebody else has that you really need. Oh, well, he's got a nice lawnmower. I should go out and get a new lawnmower. I really deserve that lawnmower. You know? I want nothing to do with a lawnmower. You know? But you, you see the differences there. You see the differences, right? It's the idea. It's the idea about what's most important. It's interesting because a lot of these prohibitions at the end of these, what we call the Ten Commandments, are really God's greater than whatever you're thinking about doing. God can take care of whatever you're thinking about doing. God can handle the situation when you want to put it in your own hands. That's really what it is. All the commandments, even if they don't bring up His name, all of them point back to God. So the idea is, is Yahweh alone is worth wanting. Only He's worthy of worship. The stuff that everybody else has, it's not. Anybody known somebody with a lot of stuff and they're not happy? It's a mess, isn't it? And you can't understand. Some people sit there and go, but you have this, 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 and this. How can you not be happy? There was a guy that went to Charles Spurgeon's church, and he was considered one of the big givers at his church. And so he invited Spurgeon one, one afternoon after church over to his house, and he lived in a place, courtyard, with rock floor all over, the little, you know, uh, uh, what do they call it? Banisters made out of stone going across, and the ivy coming down on top of everything. He was one of the few people in England at that time that had a swimming pool in the backyard and just the high ornate ceilings with all the artistry that's been done and wood carved walls and just all of this stuff walking around. And, you know, he's kind of showing it off to Charles Spurgeon as they're going through and everything. And they get to the end of the tour of the house and he goes, So, preacher, what do you think? They said he was, what'd you he say? He's going to burn. <laughs> well, no, but thanks for stealing my thunder on that story. Um, <laughs> It said he paused for a moment and he says it's things like this that make it hard for a man to die. Very wise. Sometimes we can love the things of this world so much that living for Jesus is an afterthought. It's stuff. It's stuff. And Laverne, you're right. It's going to burn. That's where it all ends up. Yeah, always just a little bit. Isn't that how people get addicted to drugs? The little bit I was doing don't make it anymore, so just a little bit more, just a little bit more. It's never enough. It's never enough. There's always the itch to scratch. 
So now moving on to the next subject of chiasm. Verses 11 compared to verse 20. Notice 11 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Skip down to 20. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What do they have in common? How you talk. The seriousness of language. The appropriate use of speech is how it is. Having your mouth, having be what is the overflow of your heart in such a way as to where it honors God. And in doing so, lying cannot find a foothold. That's important. Integrity in how we speak of God and express our relationship with God eliminates lying from our vocabulary. Think about this for a second. This is interesting. How many times have you lied to your spouse in your entire relationship? Don't answer out loud. I want you to make it home. You know, snow is one thing. Dealing with your spouse is another, right? But think about it. How many times have you lied to your spouse? That's my number. I've lied to my spouse four times. I was so guilty. Yes, I do. That's how messed up I am. You want to know the crazy that goes on behind this? There it is. One was about the banana. <laughs> One was about eating the banana. My mother-in-law asked me, did you eat that banana? I go, no, Beth must have done it. And I had eaten it. I would eaten the banana. And I tell everybody, when the bus was coming, I just said, here, baby. Just threw it right underneath it. It was no, no thing for me. And and I tell you what, the Lord so convicted my heart so bad, I had to go to her. And I had to confess to her how bad it was. It's happened every time. I've never lied to my son. I'm thankful for that. Sometimes when I tell him the truth about things that we sometimes feel like little kids shouldn't know, he's too young to remember it. But no, that's one commitment I made. I, I will never lie to you about anything. Because there's no reason for it. And all it does is reflect no integrity with how I talk about the Lord. Well, if he's lying about this, why would he not lie about this other situation? You know? Now, we have to be careful here because we put our foot in that bear trap every time Christmas rolls around, doesn't it? Santa Claus is going to come. Is that true? No, it's not. Is he really parked on the roof? No, we don't even have a fireplace. Well, he gets in the door. Well, that's weird. Some fat guy who loves cookies has got our key. That's strange. You see what I'm saying, though? And what, do we, what, what is the deduction after a while if you think through it? I'll tell you what I thought when I realized there wasn't a Santa Claus. Okay, so Santa Claus isn't real. Tooth Fairy's not real. Easter Bunny's not real. So what is the conclusion I can draw about Jesus? Because he's associated with almost all those things. I mean, he made my teeth, right? But in, you know, yeah, Easter Bunny, yeah, Santa Claus, but we really celebrate Jesus. Oh, so there's two truths here. Oh, wait, that's a lie? What can I deduce about the other one? Now, I don't know about you. I think it's important to think long and hard about this, and you might think I'm a radical for it. But maybe we've run the risk of blaspheming the name of God simply by promoting something like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. we've taken away from the solemn occasion 
that those times have been set aside for. Regardless if Jesus was born on December 25th or not, who cares? It's the fact that we've all come together with the common focus of saying, we're going to commemorate this. Oh, and by the way, it's all about you giving presents. Because let's be honest, our, 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 our two and five and ten-year-olds aren't all in a hurry to get down to the tree so they can worship Christ, are they? No, they're not. But that's because something else is a subject. Something else is a focus. See? Dangerous ground. Interesting how easily we can become lawbreakers. How easily we can become sinners. So notice they go together. What do they have in common? Having accurate language. Having sound speech about what we speak about. Next one, verses 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of Elohim, of Yahweh your Elohim. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Which I think is interesting about that list because that list is everything that you were coveting from your neighbor. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of similarities between the list of what you already have and what you would be coveting that your neighbor has. Notice it says 15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, therefore Yahweh your Elohim commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Look over at verse 19. You shall not steal. Hmm, what is the connection between observing a Sabbath day and theft? What do we think? Okay, not giving the Lord his due. Okay, what else we think? Notice something, focus in on verses 13 and 14. Really focus in on those two. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, right? But notice what happens here. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, okay? So notice that that right there cancels out what was going on for the other six days that we saw in the previous verse, right? It's a you-for-you you kind of thing. Everybody see that's level playing field? But notice the sense of responsibility that falls after that. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Does everybody see that it's not just about the Israelite would work, work, work on the six days and take the day off. It was that that person was in, in, in responsibility of everything that he owned resting at the same time. It's not just people, is it? No, it's not. Notice, ox and donkey. Hey, donkey, sit down. You see what I'm saying? You can't be treading grain right now. Does everybody see that? Everybody rests. Now here's a question. If we're talking about on the Sabbath, someone who is in charge, 
is responsible for working hard six days and taking off one day. And when you take that day off, you take it off. You also are to have that trickle down to everything you own. Now, what is the common denominator that relates to you shall not steal? What does theft have to do with? Taking somebody's property. It has to do with property. Notice the management in the Sabbath of all those things that have been committed to your trust by the Lord and you calling for a full on, everybody rests on this day. It's how you are managing your property. Property is the common denominator throughout both of those. What I put up here, just in my personal looking through here and dealing with it, uh, what I put through here, uh, verses 12 through 15 are the management of labor and property. And verse 19 is the protection of property. Let me ask you this. What happens as an Israelite if you don't observe that Sabbath day and you work on it? You'd get stoned. Why? Why does God take that so seriously? I mean, we're... We're talking about just a day. Well, God, don't you realize that all I need is just a couple of more hours to get this done and, and, and we'll knock it out and then I can rest and then I can rest. See, this is a really great principle to communicate to the workaholic. Then I can, then, then, then I, it'll all be okay. We just got to get, we just got to press on and stretch through this time. Why is that? What are you stealing at that moment? What's that? Time from God. Let me ask you this question. Don't answer out loud. You're exactly right. How many of us have a set-aside time just for the Lord? Notice what the Sabbath wasn't. Sabbath wasn't, well, Packers are on. Praise Jesus. That's not the Sabbath, is it? The Sabbath is, there's a day set aside, a day. Out of six, God's asking for one. Doesn't sound like he's asking for too much. It's not that we shouldn't, you know, I, I only serve God on one day. I don't serve him on the others. He's not asking that. He's not, that's not what he's advocating. We're serving him always. But there is a day set aside where nothing happens but him. That's the idea. Do you have that day? Do you have that time? I have an interesting picture it's posted back in the copy room. And it's funny because the guy sitting in the chair kind of looks like Dale Cady, uh, which is funny. But he's got his Bible sitting here next to him in a chair. It's like a back view. And you can see on his television screen, he's got football on. And he turns around like this and he's looking at, you know, you're looking here at him. He's got bloodshot eyes. And the words that are coming out of his mouth is, I sure do wish I knew my Bible better. Do you have a regular time with the Lord? That's what God's calling for. Out of seven days, take one. It'll just be all about me. Don't worry about who's going to go to the grocery. Don't worry about getting that last bit of the harvest in. Don't you think that God can wait so that that won't spoil so that you get it in on time? I mean, can't God do that? He can, can He? That's question, the question is, do we believe He can do that? He can do it. Do we believe He can do it? But you see what I'm saying? I've never known anyone that's ever gone wrong by honoring God first. Not one person. 
The problem is, is that he has been filed in amongst the schedule of life. Instead, what does he tell us? I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's very interesting to see. A time set aside. A time marked out, niched out, just me and God. Make you a prayer closet. You thought about that? You don't need all those shoes. Make a prayer closet. Roll up a towel, put it down, put your knees on it, get on your face before the Lord. Print out some of your favorite psalms, pray them back to the Lord. When Chad Selji was here, he gave me this little journal thing to do Bible study in. I made it into a prayer book. And I've just got lists of people I'm praying for and what I'm praying you know, for myself and for the church and everything that's going on. Just spending time in the Lord, getting up at 5.30 in the morning and going down and sitting in the recliner with the Lord. Meditate on some psalms and then pray through my list. Pray for these people. This person needs conviction. They're in sin. This person needs encouragement. They've been sinned against. This person needs help. They're having to travel. I thought it was interesting. I went through and looked at it. There's only like three physical needs on my prayer list. I was actually really impressed I didn't have more messed up hips and out of whack knees going on in my prayer list because that tends to be the content of a lot of our prayer requests. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of hospital visits to be had this week. <laughs> Who's to blame? The pastor that still had church. I, I tried to let Chuck make the call, but he wouldn't do it. All right. So the idea of property being protected, property being respected, the idea of managing what you've been given well, and part of that management, especially, is time devoted to the Lord. Time devoted to the Lord. I'll wrap up with something at the end here that, that, that kind of gnaws at me, as I think it should, and, and, and we'll deal with it here in just a minute. Um, let's see here, the next one down, verses 16 and 18. 16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not commit adultery what is the connection between those what's the connection between honoring your father and your mother and not committing adultery the family the integrity of the family is the idea and here's the reason why I don't care what the government CNN Fox News tries to tell us about anything I don't care what radio show host syndicated columnist PhD, smart guy, I don't care. The family determines the culture. This is why Satan's focus is to destroy the family. This is why we have such ridiculous amounts of fatherlessness today. Guys coming in, getting people pregnant, running off, ain't mine, can't prove it. Refuses to go on Mori Povich so they get that test back, right? But that's where we're at in life. Get your satisfaction out of it and move on to the next person. It's terrible. You guys know we did a funeral here yesterday? 23-year-old. Died of a heroin overdose. Two-year-old little boy. Her brothers were here. father was not to be found 
Father was not even brought up in the newspaper obituary. Looked to me like that ship had sailed a long, long time ago. That's sad. Because right now, somewhere, some guy has one less child that he didn't care about taking care of to begin with. That's just tragic. I mean, that's just got sin oozing out of it the more you, more you squeeze it. It's just disgusting on all levels. Integrity of the family. That's the idea. Unwed pregnancy. Let's get on the other end of it. Is that a problem? Are you guys waiting for me to give you the answer? Okay, <laughs> just making sure. Unwed pregnancy, is that a problem? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mostly underage. If you go to a good old traditional Catholic church, they'll just send you off for a while until everything's taken care of, right? They'll ship you off. You can come back later. That's serious too. Financial burdens all the way around. Divorced homes. Now you're supporting two families. You realize we wouldn't even have a welfare system if we just did what God said. Wouldn't need one. You wouldn't need one. Because the welfare system is all about giving money to people that have found themselves in sinful situations because sin got them there. This whole thing here is saying sin is never the answer. I got a better way. I got a better way. And he always does. Notice a respect, a hierarchy within the family. Mother and father, who the mother and father answerable to? Mm -hmm. Answerable to God. When's the last, and I, I've, you know, I started doing this this past week and I just got giddy with it. But Nathaniel wanted to do something. I said, no. Uh, uh. He's in that wine phase, right? And you're just like, good grief. Somebody let me stab my ears out. But because nobody wants to hear that, man. Let me make sure this is okay. Okay. Make sure they made it home. But good grief. No more whining. Please stop with the whining, right? So I, so I took him and I put him on my knee, and he's two, you know, but I'm, I'm being very clear with him. I said, listen, when I tell you no, it means no. And the reason why is because God put me in charge of you. You are my son because God gave you to me. And I am to raise you as he calls me to do. I am in charge of you. Your responsibility is is to do whatever it is I tell you. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but it's true. Now, did he totally get it? Probably not, but guess what? I'm sure I'm going to get to tell him again. And I'm going to get to tell him probably multiple times a day coming up soon. You see what I'm saying? As time goes on, notice that, that, that the root of parenting is not, because I say so. We all been guilty of that? Yeah. Because. But why? Because. Then we give them that look, the snap and the point. Yeah. And then we give them this, that kind of thing. I'm starting to learn all these things from you guys. So, but think about what you do in that situation. You draw your parenting back. It doesn't originate in you. Why? Because you fail. And I fail. And I'm going to fail terribly. In some way where I'm going to have to come and apologize to my child and say, you know what, daddy was wrong. Daddy was wrong, wrong, wrong. And I don't ever want you to 
ever do anything like I just did or handle that situation that way. But if my parenting is rooted in the fact of God has orchestrated our family in this way, that's why you should listen. Because God's opinion matters. And then I raise him to respect God. All of a sudden we start eliminating a lot of the problems we might otherwise have. Dad's going to fail. Dad is going to fail. Papa does not fail. Big difference. Big difference. So notice the integrity of the family, the centrality of the family, handling the family connection with respect. But here's what's interesting. It leads us to the middle point, right? That's the whole point of a chiasm, right? As you work your way out, and that stuff is important, but it's all leading into one main point, one main theme that needs to stretch across that whole section there. And notice what it is of all things. What is it? You shall not murder. Of all the things for this chiasm of subject to be leading up to, why in the world would it stop on this idea of you shall not murder? What is it? The sanctity of the life that God has given us. I don't know that I could have put it any better. The fact that life is precious and important. What I wrote down was is life is to be respected and preserved is the idea. Not murdering. Now remember, God's, God doesn't do anything just happenstance, whatever. He's giving a reason behind it. Why, at this moment in history, before they cross over into the promised land, there's, there's actually two reasons for this, one immediate reason and one overarching reason. Why would it be important for this structure, because they're not ignorant of this, they see it, they get it. It's not like us trying to go through and interpret this now. They would be much more readily getting this literary structure that's lined out for them. They would have grasped it. Why do you think that God would have promoted you shall not murder at the forefront of this chiasm? What would be the point of that? There's two reasons. But what would be the point? They're about to go in and utterly destroy and kill civilizations of people because God has commanded that. Here's the question. Are they murdering them? So you have to ask yourself the question. We think, are they murdering them? Is it murder? Is it cold murder? Is it, I don't like the color of your skin, you dirty such and such. Well, I don't like the way you looked at me. Is that what it is? Is it just cold-blooded? No. What is it? What is it? God's commandment, but why? What's He doing to those nations? He's judging them. He is judging them, and God uses other nations as a means of execution. Read Habakkuk. Habakkuk is very clear about it. Lord, what in the world are you doing? What in the world's going on here? There's so much unrighteousness in Israel. How come you're not taking care of this, God? Where are you when we needed you in this? How come everybody's just sinning and running amok and it's so crazy? And God's response to Habakkuk is, if I told you what I was getting ready to do, you wouldn't even believe it. I'm going to do something that you're going to sit here and you're going to have more questions than answers when I gave you the answer. Does anybody know what the answer was to Habakkuk? How he was going to deal with the evil? The Chaldeans. I'm going to raise them up and bring them in, which Chaldeans are part of the Babylonians. I'm going to raise up a pagan nation and they are going to be my execution tool to come in and spank my child Israel. 
Does that make any sense to you? Makes no sense to me. You know what it tells me? God knows what he's doing and I don't. That's what it tells me. Now, if I would have been Habakkuk, I would have been like, yeah, God, you're right. I don't believe any of you just told me. Even though you told it to me, I don't get it. There's a difference between murder and judgment. God is not a murderer. Satan is a murderer. He's been a murderer from the beginning. If we want to know what murder looks like in the Bible, we see what Cain did to Abel. Because of his jealousy, he rose up and he slew his brother in the field. And his blood cries out. It testifies to the sin that was committed. But there is never anything that God does where human life is taken that He does in an unjust manner. Why? Because it's completely apart from His character. For Him to do that would be for Him to operate unlike Himself and we could call Him hypocrite and walk away. God will never compromise His character in this. Never. Now that's the first reason. Because they're getting ready to go in and be used by the Lord as an execution tool to exercise His judgment upon a nation that He has deemed irredeemable. And that alone, that's why we spent so much time kind of thinking through that towards the beginning of this class. That alone is hard to grasp and deal with. Some of you got that book, Show No Mercy, about the views of that genocide that, that happened. But there's another reason. Why would you shall not murder be at the center of God's ten words for a whole nation of people for an overarching purpose? give you a hint. I find no guilt in this man. Do with him what you will. But I can't find anything wrong with him. And the crowds chanted, crucify him. Crucify him. Why would he do? But the crowds got all the louder. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. We want blood and we want it now. And the Pharisees have wanted it ever since He healed someone on the Sabbath day. Don't you know He's a lawbreaker? Makes you think, doesn't it? makes you think that the very things that the Pharisees were trying to defend and use as their justification to kill the Christ was also the very thing that in chiastic form pointed them away from the death of an innocent person. Highly interesting. Any thoughts before we pray? Father, thank You so much for the law, the ten words, and how, Father, we can meditate and think through peace together. Your amazing words. Father, it's beyond our comprehension. And Lord, being privileged to be on the other side of this event and seeing how You work in history, Father, it's truly phenomenal. Father, please keep us safe in the snow. Help us to drive humbly and sensibly. Father, help us to sit aside 
a time for study, a time for meditation, a time for prayer. Not because we're commanded to. We're not held to this law. We've actually been saved from the condemnation that the law brings because our flesh is weak. But Lord, because our hearts stand in awe that you would even want anything to do with us. And yet you love us and encourage us and want to lavish grace on us and see us succeed and champion us on and you are our biggest cheerleader when we even feel like no one loves us. Father, I pray that our hearts are motivated to want to love you with our time. We pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.